All right, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 50 tonight. Genesis chapter 50. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to preach. I'm normally over in the, the uh, what's that building? The Atha. Uh, I work here, and I can't remember the name of the building sometimes. Uh, I'm normally over there in King's Kids, and so I'm preaching to them on every Wednesday night. But tonight, Nathan Labee is preaching to them, so uh, I... I didn't ask him. I just told him he was going to, to preach to them, and uh, he graciously just said, all right, and he was, he's been preparing, so uh, I'm thankful for him just being willing to do that. Uh, Genesis chapter 50 tonight. We're going to start reading in verse number 19, so if you would stand with me as we read the Word of God, starting in verse 19. It says, And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. I love the, the story of Joseph. Uh, the life of Joseph is one of those subjects that uh, in Scripture that most Christians are pretty familiar with. Uh, and it's a, a very eventful story whenever you're reading it. It takes up 13 out of the 50 chapters in Genesis uh, that are they're dedicated to it. And these verses that we just read are often looked at as probably the, the focal point and the most significant part of Joseph's story because it is Joseph himself acknowledging the fact that he had to endure some hardships. He had to endure some, some injustices done to him, a lot of suffering. He went through some hardships that would, would not be easy for anybody to go through, especially a young man like he was at the time that he went through them. But what is remarkable about Joseph is that through it all, he never took his eyes off of God. He knew his God very, very well. And so tonight, as we study the life of Joseph, we're going to look at three facts about God that Joseph knew about his God that allowed him to go through all of this suffering and injustice and still be able to trust God and say, it's all part of the plan. That's the title of tonight's message. And if we can grasp what Joseph knew about God, no matter what life throws at us, we too will be able to say, it's all a part of the plan. Thank you. Please be seated. So, what is the first fact that we see about God when studying the life, life of Joseph? We see in point number one that God's trials are profitable. God's trials are profitable. Flip over to Genesis chapter 37, if you will. We're going to be doing a lot of flipping back and forth because, like I said, it's 13 chapters that the story of Joseph is in, and so we're going to be bouncing back and forth to different events in it. Uh, Joseph was a man that from a very early age, he went through some serious trials, as I mentioned before. And uh, we see at the beginning of his story in Genesis 37 that at the age of 17, Joseph is despised by his older brothers because they clearly see him as their father's favorite son. Now, I'm not a parent, um, but I do know that a lot of parents claim that they do not have a favorite child. And may I say, no child believes that at all. Um, my, my parents have been claiming that for years. Uh, my mom's not in here to, to, you know, assert her claim on that, uh, but it's so obvious to me. I know that I am the favorite child of my parents, right? Like, it's, it's clear as day. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, I'm just joking. I do know that I am my mother's favorite biological son because I'm her only biological son. So uh, that's, that's, that's a, a great thing. But, you know, th this idea of favoritism, this is something that I go through even here at the academy. 
I always have students asking me, and there's some people that are blushing in the room right now, Brother Baker, who's your favorite student? Uh, you know, is it, is it me? Am I your favorite student? Uh, is it this person? Is it that person? And funny enough, it's the older students that are the most concerned with this question. You know, this group right over here. Uh, and, and every time I tell them I don't have a favorite student, uh, but they still keep, keep digging and nagging and asking me that question until finally I just reach a breaking point and I tell them that Gretchen is my favorite student. And I do. I, I tell them every time. I just say it's Gretchen, okay? Uh, so I, I think we can, we can all agree that assuming favoritism causes a lot of problems, especially in a family unit. But here, it seems like none of Joseph's brothers, none of the sons of Jacob had to ask their father who his favorite child was. They all knew that it was Joseph. The Bible even says, clear as day, in verses 3 and 4, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. And the response of his older brothers is that they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Now, on top of the fact that Joseph is his father's favorite child, he comes to his family with this dream that one day he will reign over them and they're all going to bow down to him. And naturally, after hearing that from their little brother, the, the older brothers decide, we don't like this kid so much, right? Uh, they, they decide, we hate him yet the more, as the Bible says. Now, here's the thing, Joseph couldn't help that he was favored above his other brethren, that he was his father's favorite. Uh, that, that wasn't his choice. He didn't do really anything to, to earn that. Nor could he help how his family would react to the dreams that God had given to him. And so we see here that even though Joseph didn't do anything wrong, it's because of these things that he is about to go through some of the greatest trials of his life. And so it's a very important thing to note here. Just because you didn't do anything wrong, or just because you're in the will of God, that doesn't mean that you won't experience some trials. In fact, it may be that because you are in the will of God, as Joseph was, that you're going to experience trials, as Joseph did. And it's no doubt that being despised by your own family is a trial in and of itself. But Joseph is about to go through a whole lot worse stuff. While Joseph is going to check on his brothers as his father asks him to do, as they see him coming, uh, their hatred toward him is kindled, and they begin devising a plot to murder their own brother. You know, but after thinking about it for a little while, they decide, you know, maybe killing him is not the best idea. That probably wouldn't be good. Instead, let's have some mercy on him. So they decide to throw him into a deep pit and then sell him off to some Midianite slave traders for 20 pieces of silver. So very merciful there. And this is where... The suffering really starts for Joseph. As a 17-year-old kid, Joseph is ripped away from his home and brought to a strange land to work as a slave for Potiphar, who is the captain of Pharaoh's guard. So that's not really what you would call a, a great situation. But if you turn over to chapter 39 and verse 20, we see that even through all of this, chapter 39 and verse 20 says, The Lord was with Joseph. And he was a prosperous man. Remember that statement because we're going to talk about that a little bit later. If you know the story, Joseph does very well in the house of Potiphar. He receives promotion and is given quite a bit of responsibility. And things actually begin to look up for Joseph. That is until he is faced with another trial. While in Potiphar's house, Joseph begins to be pestered and tempted by Potiphar's wife to commit adultery with her. But Joseph, being a godly man, denies her advances day after day, realizing that this would not just be a sin against his earthly master, Potiphar, because that's his wife. 
But more importantly, it would be a sin against his heavenly master, God. And Joseph was more concerned about pleasing God than he was about pleasing himself. But Potiphar's wife, she, she wouldn't have this. And so in one final desperate attempt to get what she wants, she catches Joseph by his garment and tries to force herself upon him. But Joseph, realizing that this is sinful, this is not of God, he tears himself away from this woman and runs for his life. And in reading this account, uh, it's, it's impossible for me to not think of what Solomon says in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 about the strange woman. Because that's exactly what this woman is. That's exactly what Potiphar's wife is. She's a strange woman. It was hundreds of years after the time that, uh, of Joseph that Solomon would write most of the book of Proverbs. And even in his time, Joseph knew very well that if he were to go with this woman... It would be as destroying his own soul, as Proverbs 6.32 says. He knew that he would be as a bird that hasteth to the snare and knoweth not that it is for his life, as Proverbs 7.23 says. Joseph's love and dedication to the Lord caused him to resist the temptations of the strange woman. And there's a whole message that, that could be preached on in that statement alone. But now, because she is not getting what she wanted, that she's not getting the prey that she was hunting, this wicked woman falsely accuses Joseph of doing the exact thing that she was trying to do to him uh, and has him thrown into prison. And now, get this, because of his love and dedication to the Lord, Joseph finds himself once again in the midst of a great trial. Falsely accused and unjustly thrown into prison. And yet we see again in chapter 39 and verse 21 that the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. When looking at both of these trials, we see that still the Lord was with Joseph and that he showed him favor and made him to prosper. You know, growing up, I remember hearing a statement uh, often often said in church or something. I just remember hearing a lot of people say it, and it might be familiar to you as well. And the statement is, God does not let our trials go to waste. And I would agree with that statement. But as I've thought about it more and kind of just been, that's been a thought that I've thought about frequently, I think a more accurate way to phrase that statement is by saying, God is not willing that our trials go to waste. Because Here's the catch. God never views our trials as a waste. He never does. But you might. God never intends our trials to be for nothing, but often we do. I think one of the most fundamental verses of the Christian faith is Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You know, it, it's one of those uh, verses that many Christians have memorized and have claimed for various circumstances that they face in life. And any time Christians tend to go through some sort of trials or heartaches, the one verse you always hear them quoting to themselves or as to others as an encouragement is Romans 8.28. You know, hey, all, all things work together for good, brother, one might say. But did you know that verse is not true for everyone? Now, don't misunderstand me. The Bible does indeed say that all things do work together for good. But everyone tends to stop there. And there's a giant glaring problem with that. That's not where the verse stops. It's not where it ends. You know, like a lot of the promises found in the Word of God, this verse has specific qualifications that need to be met in order for one to reap the promise. 
You, you say, okay, what, what are you talking about? Let's give some examples. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, God promises to give direction. Wonderful. But only to those that trust in him with all of their heart, those that do not lean on their own understanding and those that acknowledge him in everything that they do. If you're not doing those things, then you can expect to receive no direction at all from God. And he's not required to give it to you either. In James 1, 5, God promises to give wisdom to anyone that asks for it. If there is a promise that I claim more than any other, it is James 1, 5. But only if they ask in faith. Nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. You have to ask in faith, believing not that he might give you the wisdom that you're asking him for, but that he will give it to you. The Bible says that those that question whether or not God will keep that promise will receive nothing. And Romans 8, 28 is no different. Yes, God promises to work all things together for good, but only to them that love God and to those who follow his calling. So the only reason that God showed favor to Joseph and allowed him to prosper through these trials was because Joseph never stopped loving and following God. Because whenever you stop loving and following God, all things will cease to work together for your good. But when you truly love God and follow him with all of your heart, as Joseph did, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he makes even the toughest trials in your life to be profitable. And as he was going through these trials, it's, it's remarkable because Joseph had the, the spiritual maturity and wherewithal to recognize that although he endured much suffering and injustice, God was still good. And those trials that he went through were not intended by God to hinder or slow him down from becoming the man that he wanted him to be. But rather, those trials played a critical role in making him the man that God wanted him to be. Those trials were specifically designed to profit Joseph in the long run. So we see that Joseph knew that God's trials are profitable. He also knew, point number two, that God's training is purposeful. God's training is purposeful. From the time that Joseph was sold into slavery to the end of his story, we see that he held three main positions. One as a slave in Potiphar's house, one as an inmate in the prison, and one as the second in command over all of Egypt. A slave, a prisoner, and a ruler of one of the most powerful civilizations in human history. That is quite the resume, if I do say so myself. I mean, that's pretty good. Uh, and, and with each of these positions, Joseph had some jobs that he was responsible for completing, some tasks that he was given, some training that uh, he had. Now, we're mainly going to focus on the first two jobs because those are what led up to Joseph's position as Pharaoh's second in command. I don't know for sure, but at least in the beginning, I can't imagine that Joseph particularly enjoyed the work that he was given to do, mainly because of the circumstances in which he found himself uh, getting these jobs, right? You know, the whole thing about uh, being stripped away from his home and sold into slavery by his own brothers or unjustly thrown into prison for a crime that he did not commit. Uh, it's just my own hunch, right? But I don't know that Joseph was very excited to wake up every morning to the thought that he was now a slave forced to work a job that he did not choose against his will. A job that if he did not do would probably result in him being brutally punished. Uh, or a job working in a filthy, dark prison shoulder to shoulder with the most detestable and despised people in society. None of that sounds very good to any of us. 
And I, I think if we're being honest, most of us would probably find it extremely difficult to perform in those jobs with any sort of a good attitude. But now, take into consideration who Joseph is. He's the son of Israel. The man whom God said, I will make of you a great nation. Israel was a very important man, which by relation makes his son Joseph also a very important man along with his brothers. But why? Because these are the men whom all of the children of Israel will come out of in the next 65 books of the Bible that you read. All right. This is, these are the children of Israel. They all come from Israel and his 12 sons. Right. Um, but then you also have to remember that Joseph is not like the rest of his brothers either. Because the rest of his brothers did not receive a, a divine dream from God revealing that they would one day be rulers over the rest. Neither did the rest of his brothers receive from God the ability to interpret such dreams. But Joseph did. Joseph knew that he was called by God to a greater purpose. Joseph knew that God had an important role for him to fulfill. I don't know that he knew exactly what the, what the future held for him, but he did know that he would be in some sort of leadership position that was significant enough for even his own family members to bow down to him. Joseph knew that. So when we take all of that into consideration, it really does not make sense at all for a man like that, a man like Joseph, to be working as a slave. Or to be working as a prisoner, does it? You know, you almost expect, when reading this, you almost expect Joseph to look at the positions he's in and say, how worthless is this? You know, what a waste of my time this is. Does God even know who I am? Do, do any of these people here know who I am, whose father, who is, who is my father? God has called me to be a great leader, and here I am working the job of a slave. I'm working the job of a prisoner. Joseph could have looked at both of these positions as being well beneath him. He could have looked at himself as being too good or too important for such lowly positions. But the crazy thing is that we get no indication from Scripture at all that that was Joseph's thought process. What we instead see is that while Joseph was forced to work a job that he did not want to do, in a place that he did not want to be, he still did his work heartily as unto the Lord. He did not view any job as too low for him because through it all he maintained the heart of a servant. He still had the mindset that, you know, whatever my hand finds to do, I'm going to do it with my might. Not because he's seeking to please man or seeking to please himself, but because he's concerned only with pleasing God. When you seek first and foremost to please God, you'll find that whatever position you're in, whatever training God brings your way, it has a purpose. Because we're going to take a closer look at these jobs that Joseph held, and we'll begin to see some very uncoincidental similarities between them. And this is some good stuff. I was getting fired up about this the other day. Turn over to Genesis 39 and verse 2. Genesis 39 and verse 2. Remember, this is right after Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. Verse 2 says, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. 
And Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had, he put into his hand. And it came to pass from that time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. So we see in Joseph's first position as a slave that he's given the job of being overseer of, of Potiphar's entire house, of all his possessions, even the crops that are in the field. Remember that. That's going to come back later, okay? And we already know what happens with Joseph at this point. Just as things start looking up and things are looking all bright and cheery for him, uh, he gets accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison. Now look over at verse 20, okay? Uh, chapter 39, verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in the prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. All right. So, he gets some experience in the first job. Now let's look at the second job. We see in the second job as a prisoner that Joseph is given the job to literally rule over all of the prisoners in the prison. He's in charge of making sure all of these guys, all of these prisoners get their jobs done. Also, very important skill. Now let's look at his last position. Turn to Genesis 41. This is so good. Uh, you know, I couldn't write this better myself if I tried. And that's why God's the author and not me. Look at verse 39 of chapter 41. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house. Does that sound familiar? And according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Again, does that sound familiar? Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And now look at verse 46, because this is important. We see what Joseph did, because uh, there's a famine that's coming and he needs to prepare for it. Verse 46 says, And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities, the food of the field, which was round about every city, laid he up in the same. And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea, very much until he left numbering, for it was without number. All right, this, this is so good. You know what we all just read right now? What we read was that through the trials and through all of the heartaches and the different positions and all of these things moving back and forth, this is the sovereignty and providence of Almighty God. I, I love this because Joseph's prior jobs as a measly servant and a prisoner were exactly the kind of training that Joseph needed to be ruler over all of Egypt. Just think about that. The lessons and skills that he learned as a slave in Potiphar's house and as an inmate in prison were critical in preparing him for the job of being a ruler over Egypt. That's the very job that God used Joseph to save the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people from a devastating famine. 
What's the point? As long as you focus on serving the Lord, God can and will use whatever situation you're in, whether seemingly bad or good, whatever job you have, whatever training you're going through, and use it to prepare you for a purpose far greater than you could possibly imagine. I guarantee you that while Joseph was working as a slave in Potiphar's house and keeping his house in order and keeping track of all the crops in the field, I guarantee you he wasn't thinking he would one day be in charge of Pharaoh's house and he would be keeping track of every single crop in all of Egypt for the good of humanity at the time. I guarantee you that while Joseph was working in the prison and leading all the inmates, that he wasn't thinking that he would one day be leading all of Egypt, but God did. And Joseph just remained a faithful worker every step of the way, completely content with the job he was given by God at the time. It's remarkable. So we see through, through the life of Joseph that God's trials are profitable. We, we see that God's training is very purposeful. And we finally see that God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. Turn back to Genesis chapter 40, if you will. If you remember, while Joseph was in prison, he had a little run-in with uh, Pharaoh's head butler and head baker. Uh, apparently, these two men did something to annoy Pharaoh, to offend him, uh, so Pharaoh had them thrown into prison. Uncoincidentally, it's the same prison that Joseph is working in. And after some time, the butler and baker both dream very similar dreams, uh, that they were both very disturbed to the point that their countenance, the Bible says, was visibly sad. And when Joseph sees their sadness, he asks them what's wrong. And they explain that they have both dreamed these dreams and there's no one able to interpret them. And in verse 8 of chapter 40, Joseph gives a very important response. He says, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me them, I pray you. We'll get into why that response is so important in a little bit, but you know how the story goes. Joseph interprets the two dreams. Uh, The butler is going to be restored to his position, and the baker is going to be executed, unfortunately. The verses that we're about to read now uh, are Joseph pleading with the butler before the butler is set free. Let's look at verse 14. Joseph says, But think on me when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray thee, unto me, and make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. For indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also have I done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. Now skip down to verse 20. And it came to pass the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast unto all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief butler unto his butlership again. And he gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forgot him. And now look over at uh, chapter 41 and verse 1. And it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed. Through reading all of this, it's, again, very important to note that Joseph had never lost faith in God. You say, how do you know that? Remember, what was Joseph leaning on as a reminder that God was going to do something great in his life? His dreams. He he never lost sight of the fact that those dreams were from God and that they signified God bringing Joseph to great power. 
You know, if Joseph had lost faith and stopped believing that God communicates significant messages through dreams, then he would have never interpreted the dreams of the butler and the baker. He would have just dismissed them as nothing. Joseph placed great value in the dreams of the baker and the butler because he was still convinced that his two previous uh, uh, dreams from 11 years ago would still be fulfilled by God. And the total time that Joseph spent being a, uh, from being sold into slavery uh, to ruler of Egypt, that whole span of time was 13 years, from age 17 to age 30. But at the time that Joseph interprets these two dreams for these two men, uh, it's only been 11 years. And let me just say, that's a long time for a 28-year-old man. I would know. I'm turning 28 this year, and 11 years is a very large portion of my life. And I imagine that when Joseph had interpreted this dream and asked the butler to put in a good word for him to Pharaoh, that, you know, he was probably feeling a little optimistic, you know, thinking, oh, man, this is it. Maybe, I, maybe I'll finally be able to get out of this place. But then a day goes by and a week. Come on, Lord. I know you had me interpret that dream for a reason. And then a month and then six months. God, hey, uh, you remember that, that dream you gave me back when I was a teenager? Uh, the one where my family's going to bow down to me? It was a pretty, pretty big deal. They got pretty mad at me for, for that. Uh, I still believe that, Lord, but you know, it's going to be kind of hard for that to happen if I'm still stuck in this prison. So can you just you know, jog that butler's memory for me, please? And then a year goes by. And then we see in the first verse of chapter 41 that for two years... The butler completely forgot about Joseph. But more importantly, again, while the butler forgot about Joseph, God never did. Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forget him. And it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed. You see, God was not waiting for the dreams of the butler and the baker to release Joseph from prison, although that looked like a wide open opportunity, like an open door from God for Joseph's suffering to finally end. God was not waiting for the dreams of the butler and the baker. God was waiting for the dreams of Pharaoh to release Joseph from prison. You know, Joseph could have grown resentful toward God in that time. Uh, he, 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 he could be thinking that God forgot about him, but Joseph didn't do that. Joseph could have looked at God uh, at, at the time that he actually interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He could have looked at God as being two years late. You know, what took you so long, man? But he didn't. Instead, he knew that God is always on time and that his timing is perfect. And when the time came two years later for Joseph to interpret another very important dream, he didn't say, oh, <laughs> here we go again, God. We find ourselves, you want me to do something, interpret this dream again, all right? I don't even know why I keep doing this for you. How much longer are you going to make me wait after I, I interpret this dream, huh? He didn't have that mindset at all. He did so faithfully. He interpreted the dream because he felt that's what God wanted him to do, because God had given him a gift to do it. And this time, just two years later, his waiting was over. I was reading this. Just imagine what might have happened if Joseph was released from prison right after the butler, if the butler remembered right away. 
I obviously don't know fully what would happen, but I imagine Joseph would have tried to go back to his own country. And he gave some indication of that when he was asking the butler to remember him by saying, hey, I was, I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. I don't belong here. I want to go back home. I imagine he did want to go back home, back to his father, who he loved, which is completely natural. But had Joseph had his way, he could have missed out on unimaginable blessings had he not waited just two more years. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people could have died from famine had Joseph not waited just two more years. And I believe that the moment that Pharaoh promoted Joseph to the second most powerful man in the known world at the time, that Joseph realized, oh, that's why he had me wait two more years. Because God's timing is perfect. The whole point of this message is to prove to us that God knows exactly what he's doing in our lives. We don't have to understand a thing, thankfully, because I find myself not understanding a lot at times. God doesn't tell us that we need to understand every little thing that he is up to. Our sole responsibility is to love God and obey him. That's it. As I said before, that's why all things actually did work together for Joseph's good in his life. Because Joseph actually loved God. And Joseph actually did what he knew God wanted him to do. That's why all things work together for Joseph's good. And that's the only way that things will work together for our good as well. Joseph never made the excuse that because he was now in a faraway land, he was exempt from obeying God. He never made the excuse that because he was thrown into a completely different culture that he now has a a pass, a free pass to forsake the God of his father. He never made any excuse that uh, because he experienced great trauma and heartache and trials and all these different things uh, from his own family members that he had no obligation to serve God anymore. Why? Because Joseph actually loved God. And when you actually love God, you will also seek to obey him no matter the circumstance. And all of these issues, the the trials, the the training, the timing, any issue that we have with those things that God brings into our life, because God does bring the trials, God does bring the training, and he does have the, the, the proper timing in our life. But anytime we have an issue with that, it always traces back to us having a completely wrong view of God. You know, you may think that your trials are keeping you from being all that you can be, and there's nothing good that can possibly come out of them, but God says that it is those exact trials that he's going to use to make you what he wants you to be. You know, you see so often we we face these trials, we pray to God asking him to remove trials from our life, not even realizing that to ask God to remove a trial is to ask him to stop working in our lives a lot of the time. We view trials as a hindrance, something that is keeping us from being everything that God intended us to be, but that could not be further from the truth. The reality is, is that the trials that God allows into our lives are absolutely crucial ingredients specifically designed by God to make us into everything that he intended us to be. You, know, you, you may think that the training you're going through is absolutely useless, you know, and you're never going to use it, but God is saying, hey, I know what I'm doing, Okay. I can see 10, 20, 30, however many years you want into the future. And what you're learning right now, while it may not seem like it, it will serve a purpose for me in due time. 
You know, young people really struggle with this one, especially while they're in school. And they're not they're not the only ones on the hook. All of us are because adults have the same problem. Never say I'm never going to use this skill. Why am I even learning this subject? I'm never going to use this in life. Such statements are a mockery to God, because what you're really saying to him is, God, you really don't know what you're doing. You made a mistake in putting me in this job. You made a mistake in putting me in this school. This isn't going to benefit me at all in life. How arrogant can you be? Last time I checked, none of us have figured out how to time travel. I don't know anybody in this room with a time machine. And I don't know of any of us that actually know how to predict the future. So we don't know what tomorrow holds, but God does. So isn't it possible, just possible, that a God that is all-knowing, and providential and sovereign and is not bound by time or space. Isn't it possible that he might have a better idea than we have as to why we are in a particular place in life that we're griping and complaining about? Isn't it possible that he may have a very specific reason as to why we're in this particular job that we don't really like or this class that we can't stand or this position that we feel is beneath us? I'll tell you, not only is it possible, it is factual. I love what Henry Blackaby has to say about this, uh, about this thought in his book. It's not, it's not experiencing God, but it's his book, uh, The Man God Uses. Blackaby says this, God is able to see your life as a whole picture. God knows where he is taking you and what skills and abilities he will have to develop in your life for you to be effective down the road. View every task God gives you as critical. What about timing? You may, you may think that God is taking too long to answer your prayers, uh, that, that you know, he's, he's making you wait too long for something that you feel you're ready for. You know, God, what's taking so long? How much longer are you going to make me go through this, this trial? How much longer do I need to wait for you to answer my prayer requests? Now, I have no idea what the situation may be in your life that you're waiting on God to work or make progress in, but day after day goes by and it seems like it will never come. But God is saying, just wait a little bit longer. If this trial were to stop now, you wouldn't get everything that I have planned for you. I want to give you what you're asking for, but if I were to give it to you now, it would not be good for you because you're not ready for it. Yes, I've called you to that position, but I have more for you to learn before you're ready to take it. Just keep waiting on me. If I can be completely honest, one of the areas in my life that I am the most thankful for God's timing is the area of marriage. Uh, I'll tell you, when I was a teenager, I was 100, I mean 100% sure that I would be married by like 23 at the latest. You know what I'm going to say, right? As I mentioned earlier, I'll be 28 this year. And unless something really, really crazy happens, I don't think I'll be getting married this year either. But you know, it, it used to bother me. I mean, I would, I would talk to God and say, God, what is taking you so long? You, you know how badly I want this. This is one of the things I want the most in life. 
And you're just not giving it to me. You know, I'm, I'm looking at all of my friends that, that are, you know, going off, getting married. They seem so happy. But God, why are you making me wait so long? How much longer do I need to wait? But it wasn't until I really started taking my relationship with the Lord seriously that I began to see I've got some problems. I'm not the kind of man that God wants me to be, which means I'm not the man that my future wife needs me to be. The man that I pray God makes me. So God withholding that from me is actually him answering my prayers. And I came to the conclusion that had God given me what I wanted when I thought I wanted it, there is not a doubt in my mind that I would have already destroyed a marriage before I ever had the chance to enjoy it. Why? Because it wasn't God's timing. God is making me wait because he only desires good for me. The only reason God tells us to wait is because he has something better in store for us if we do wait. And when we think about it that way, waiting is no longer this dreadful thing that you have to grit your teeth to get through. But instead it's a hopeful anticipation of what God is going to do in our lives. So what should our response be to all of these facts about God? Well, like I said, they shouldn't cause us to gripe and complain about our present circumstances. They, they shouldn't cause us to worry or be anxious about what the future holds. No, obviously not. Knowing that God's trials, training, and timing are all part of his perfect plan for our lives should cause us to take rest and rejoice in the fact that he is in control. But when we're griping, and when we're complaining, we're worrisome, we're anxious, that is not rest. And it reveals that we have taken our eyes off of God and fallen into the sin of unbelief. But how do we fix that? It's very simple. Confess the sin, and then look at God. Remember who he is, as Joseph did. He is wise and all-knowing. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing makes God, you know, scratch his head and wonder how he's going to fix all of our messes. He is all-powerful and sovereign. Nothing is out of his control. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing in this entire universe happens without first having to go through him. And lastly, he's our heavenly father. Your father that loves you so much, he gave up that which was most precious to him, that he might just have the opportunity to have an intimate relationship with you. If there's anyone you can trust will have only your absolute best interest in mind, it is your Heavenly Father. When you realize that, you will be able to endure God's trials. You will be able to utilize God's training to its fullest potential And you will be able to realize God's timing is perfect because you will see that it's all a part of his perfect plan. Let's all stand.